Well, I don't know if there's ever been a, a greater stanza written in Christian history than the third stanza of the love of God. I love that, that uh, hymn, and that's what we're talking about today is the love of God. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Well, I say that, though we're not going to be here for a long time, so you can turn there just to entertain me, I guess, sorry. Well, we're actually going to be looking at a lot of things before we get to the first three verses of this chapter, and it's very fitting that this sermon be preached the day after we had a wedding here. Uh, so it was a sweet day yesterday, thank you to all who came out, and uh, so many of you worked so hard to make that a special day for Roy and Renee, and it was a, good, it was a really good day. So uh, let's talk some more about love today. <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> I erred this week in not getting my sermon notes to Sandra for the bulletin, so sorry about that. You don't have an outline. You're not going to know when we're getting close to the end of the sermon today. Sorry about that. <laughs> but um, we are going to begin the message today by answering the question, what is love? And uh, we'll start there. So as we go about answering the question, what is love, there are three key elements that I would like for us to address. And I want to start, the first element, uh, I want to start with the nature of God. I want to talk about the nature of God. And as we go through the first part of the sermon today, uh, we're going to be looking at over 20 passages. So... um, They'll, they'll be up on the screen. I warned Walker that we've got like an olympic size challenge today back there with all the verses we're going to be looking at. But I want us to start with the nature of God because when we seek to define anything virtuous, we have to start with God because God is the standard, the ultimate standard of all virtue. In fact, it could be said about God's attributes that those are His perfections. You ever heard that, that these are God's perfections? It's because He's perfect in all that He does, and particularly when it comes to love, God is the definition of love. You know the verse, 1 John 4, 8, God is love, right? God is agape love, agape. It's that Greek word that means sacrificial love, sacrificial, unconditional, unmerited love. It's a word that's not too popular outside of early uh, the, the Bible when it comes to early Greek writings. You don't see that word agape popping up in lots of places. But of course, in the Bible, you see that word all over the place, love, agape, love. And it says, Scripture says, that God is love. Thus, He is the definition of love. You go about asking the question, what is love? Well, you should go about answering the question by defining who God is. What is love? Well, who is God? And note, too, that the Scripture says that God is love. It doesn't say that love is God. If you get that backwards, you'll end up in some bad places because we all come to this concept of love with our own definitions, our own experiences, our own presuppositions about how things should be. And some of those are wrong. Sorry to burst your bubble, but some of those things that you think are wrong. And when we come to the Word of God, it corrects us. And as we study the character and nature of God, particularly to see what love is, we'll be corrected and we'll be aligned with what true love is as we understand who God is. He is how we can know what love is. So 
You can try to turn to these passages if you want. You can just jot down the references, whatever's best for you. But here we go. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a, a grand sweeping tour of what love is to answer this question. And I want us to start in Numbers 14, 18. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, we get this great statement about the character of God. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. So we see here that He is abundant in loving kindness. We see lots of things here, but let's make note that He is abundant in loving kindness. Also, Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. There's our phrase again. He's abounding in loving kindness. And a verse that I read between our songs this morning, Micah 7, 18, I just... I was struck by this verse this week. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because why? Because God delights in unchanging love. Isn't that an amazing statement? And how many of us could say we've offered unchanging love? God alone is capable of doing that because He is the only one who doesn't change. We see just from these three verses that God is very naturally loving. It's by nature that God is loving. He didn't have to learn to love. He didn't acquire love. He didn't have to experience love from someone else before He could, he could love others. But instead, God by nature is eternally loving. And you may have noticed too in those three passages, His love was linked with His slowness to anger. Or perhaps if you're using a King James Version, His long-suffering. I really like that word, His long-suffering. God's patience and His love are inextricably tied, aren't they? Because what reason does He have truly to be patient with us other than He's just abounding in love? God is abounding in love. And this love that God has is marked by sacrifice. We see that in the gospel. We'll get to that momentarily. It's marked by humility. It's marked by unconditional favor. It's marked by mercy. It's an amazing thing that God would have love and would show it to us. But perhaps even more astounding than that is that God didn't start loving at creation. Because I've already said multiple times here this morning that He's eternally loving. He didn't have to learn love, and there wasn't a time when He wasn't loving. He's always been loving. Even before creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another as perfect persons. They have shared in love, the Godhead, for all eternity. Consider this verse. This is Jesus in John chapter 17, great passage. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And it's not just in the gospel that we see God's love, but in fact, God's love that He's always had, that has been shared among the Godhead, 
It's seen among creation in a variety of ways. In Matthew chapter 5, you might want to turn there because I'll read a longer section, the end of Matthew 5. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to God's love as shown in creation. So not just before creation, but also in creation, we see that the Father shows a general love to all people. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus is going to walk them through a very basic concept when it comes to love. He says, but I say to you, this is Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you, do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lots to see in that passage in Jesus' teaching there. But we see that the Father is demonstrating His love generally to all of creation in His common grace by the way He cares for everyone, regardless of them being righteous or unrighteous, of them being good or evil. But He's displaying a general love in all of creation, an overflow of that love that exists in the Godhead. So love is an unchanging attribute of God that He's had for all eternity, all eternity that He's displayed in all of creation since He made it. And He's perfect in all the ways that He loves. So we start with the nature of God and we see it there, what love truly is. But I also want to point out to you a second thing, a second element, is that unlike God, man is found void of true love. So we see God as perfect in His love, eternal in His love, righteous and just in all that He does and displaying His love. And then we see man on the other side, totally void of true love in his natural state. This is the picture that Scripture presents to us of man. Because in our natural state, as we're born into this world, we are utterly self-willed, aren't we? (laughs) Those of you who still have little people in diapers in your home face this reality perhaps a little more frequently, though we still experience it all the time. In his natural state... Man is utterly self-willed and prideful. And that is not love. That's the void of true love. That's being devoid completely of the love of God. What is God doing in the world? We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. He's bringing glory to Himself. This is what God does, and He's right to do so. It would be wrong for God not to bring glory to Himself, but God does bring glory to Himself rightly in all that He does. And He's doing that in many ways by putting His love on display. You see it in the way that He interacts with people and the things that He says and does. He's displaying His love to bring glory to Himself. But on the other side of that, what is man doing? Well, man seeks to rob God of His glory. We are born into this world not seeking to submit to God's will, but to push our own agenda. We wrongly seek our own glory, and we do it apart from love. 
God displays His glory and brings Himself glory through His love. And what does man do in our fallen condition? We pursue our own glory and we do it apart from love. Man, in many ways, has fallen. He's fallen so far short of the love of God. Man seeks to magnify himself as his own God rather than submitting to the power of God seen in his love. A couple of passages to look at. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. It says this about mankind. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, you're familiar with that passage. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Of course, speaking of the coming Christ. Man's condition is that We don't do good. No, not one of us. We don't seek after God. We don't understand. We're all like sheep and we've gone astray, wandering, going our own way, imposing our own will, seeking to become our own gods, our own authority, and avoiding love, true love, at all costs. Man naturally avoids sacrifice, humility, mercy. Man refuses naturally to offer grace. Man, in his natural condition, is not long-suffering. I hope you see a vivid contrast between the holy, eternal God and fallen, finite, sinful man. Yet, a third element to see is that in salvation, God most vividly displays His love and man is changed to reflect His love. So here you have these opposing views, holy God, fallen, sinful, rebellious man. And yet in salvation, you don't have the two coming and meeting halfway, but you have the holy God coming over, stepping in to fallen creation, bringing that redeeming grace for Adam's race that we sang about, showing, displaying His love in the gospel so that man will be changed to reflect the love of God. For man to display that long-suffering aspect that God has, for man to show grace, for man to show mercy and compassion, for man to be slow to anger, there needs to be a reboot, a factory reset, if you will. The Bible says you have to be born again. You have to be reborn. And we see God working this in man's life. We see God's demonstration of His love, first with Israel and then with the church. A few verses in Deuteronomy, starting in Deuteronomy 4, 37, it says, Because He, God, loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them, and He personally brought you from Egypt by His great power. Why did God choose the descendants of Israel? Why did He save them out of Egypt? Because He loved them. That's the reasoning, God's love. Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
again and again as they're being told why God has saved them. It's being rooted in His love. God's the first mover here, isn't He? He moved toward man in love. Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, same book. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loves you. God's love on display among His people. In 1 Kings 10, 9, we have the Queen of Sheba speaking to Solomon. I thought this was just fascinating. Blessed be Yahweh, the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, King Solomon, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, He made you king to do justice and righteousness. And one more passage, God showing His love in Israel. This is Psalm 99, starting at verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name, thinking through Israel's history here. They called upon the Lord, and He answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord, our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds." Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Now, the word love wasn't in that passage, but certainly you can see it in that God forgave them of their sins. Why did such a holy God who is high and lifted up, who dwells on a holy hill, why would He forgive sins of undeserving fallen men? His love. His love. Not requiring any conditions, because anything that was set forth before Israel, as you know, they failed at, didn't they? Over 600 commands in the Old Testament. And if God would have said, keep all these and then I'll love you, not one of them would have been saved. But instead, we see God's love coming to this chosen people unconditionally because God loved them. What's the answer? Because God loved them. And of course, we see this in the church. It starts with the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.8, a verse we have out in the lobby. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where do you want to see in world history the love of God? You look to the cross where Jesus died for us. Jesus' death being nailed to the cross in our place for our sins, the punishment we deserved, that's a demonstration, a display of the love of God. And Ephesians 2, can you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at a few verses there. A passage I'm sure you know well, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, after talking about man's pitiful condition, his hopeless condition in his sin... Paul writes to this church in Ephesians 2.4 saying, But God, being rich in mercy, because of, here it is again, His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why have we come to know this love of God? His love has made known to us His love. Because of His love, because of His work in the gospel and dying in our place for our sins and rising again and in our lives as He's reached out and grabbed us, hasn't He? He's saved us. He's interrupted our lives. That's a display of His love. Look at chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. We're called to be imitators of God, which means walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God's demonstration of His love is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in your salvation. The very fact that you have professed faith in Christ, dear Christian, is because the love of God moved in your heart, and God did that work in you. And we see in this element, so the first thing we looked at is it's the nature of God. The second thing we looked at, man does not have it in his nature. But we see thirdly, that in salvation, God is meeting man, but not just meeting man, changing man. God is not just working externally among man, but He's coming inside of us and changing us from the inside out. And we see that in that Ephesians 5, 2 verse. We need to walk in love, He says, because we've been saved by love. We come to know this love, and we also live by this love. God's love causes you to love. As God's love takes root in your heart, as God's love is known more and more through His Word, you then love more and more. Psalm 86, verse 5, says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. God's love is experienced by those who turn to Him. He's abundant in loving kindness to all who turn to Him. In verses 15 and 16 of the same psalm, Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. As one turns to the Lord, comes to know the Lord, is the love of the Lord, He grants strength. He grants love, not just love for the moment, but love in and through us. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah? Uh, he was called to go out to Nineveh to proclaim to Nineveh that they should repent, and of course they did. Nineveh did repent. And Jonah said, that's excellent. I'm so glad that they repented. <clears throat> Jonah says this, Jonah 4, verse 2, 
he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, meaning the repentance of the Ninevites, I fled. He went to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew it. I knew if I called on them to repent, they would, and of course, you would give them your love. And he's throwing a fit, taking off his sandals and throwing them across the desert or whatever he's doing, pouting like a toddler. Because this is the nature of God, to be loving, and as one turns to Him, to show that love. That that love would be experienced by them in God's pardoning of their sin, and in God's causing them to be born again to a living hope. And from that moment forward, we are changed by the love of God. Psalm 116, verse 1. Psalm 116, 1 says, I don't have it memorized yet. So we'll need to... Okay, there we go. Uh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. I love the Lord. Why? Because He loved me, is what that could say. Because He hears my voice and my supplications. And of course, we have so many great verses in 1 John that talk about the love of God. But 1 John chapter 4, verse 10... We see in this is love, not that we loved God. Remember, man doesn't have any love to bring God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in that moment, of course, we see the love of God displayed. He demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But it goes beyond that in verse 19 of the same chapter. We love because He first loved us. Present tense, action, we love now, here and now, we love because He loved us, and that love changes us. That love changes us. We receive the love of God, first of all, but we also reflect the love of God from that point forward. So, if someone ever asks you, what is love, that's all you got to tell them. We just answered it. See, there you go. That's supposed to be a joke. All right, so when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, now go with me to our text today, 1 Corinthians 13 as we get into that chapter, we're going to be looking at this display of love, God's display of love in the church. Paul's been walking through spiritual gifts in his letter to this church. They've been abusing spiritual gifts. They've made spiritual gifts into something that they shouldn't be. And we left off last week with Paul saying, or two weeks ago rather, Paul saying to them, earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, what we were just discussing, what we were just looking at together in the Bible of the love of God coming in to the life of man and changing man that he may reflect the love of God, that's the more excellent way that Paul is speaking of. The love of God in and through us, particularly in the church, this is the more excellent way that Paul has in mind. Robert Gramacki, I I love his commentaries. If you ever have a chance to pick up Robert Gramacki commentaries, they're great. They're concise and they're just really good. 
He says, the Greeks elevated what a man knew, his intellect. The Romans worshipped what a man could do, his power. But Paul stressed what a man is, his character. The pinnacle of spiritual development is to love God with the total being and to love one's neighbor as himself. The more excellent way that Paul's presenting to the Corinthians is not their intellect that could grow, their power or their strength that could grow, but the love of God in the church. That's the more excellent way. And so he writes to them in chapter 13, verse 1, saying, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What we're learning here at the start of this new chapter is that the love of God in us and through us is where we find our worth And it's where we find our effectiveness in the Christian life. Why do you have worth as a Christian? It's because the love of God rests on you. Now, we recognize that all human beings have worth and dignity. All human beings are made in the image of God. We care for and respect all human beings at that basic level. But as a Christian, your worth goes beyond just a simple image bearer. You are in Christ. You've been changed by the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit has entered into your life and has imparted to you the love of God. The love of God has been made known to you through the gospel. And now this life that you have to live, it's set before you as a path that walks through the love of God. These gifts that God has equipped you with, it's to display His love over and over again in different ways. And all of your worth and effectiveness is just wrapped up and the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ that is flowing through the church. That's where we have our worth. That's where we have our effectiveness. And we're seeing in this passage today that there are many things that we can do without love, which is kind of wild to think about. When you consider what Paul lists off here in these three verses, he's rendering each one of these actions worthless because there's no love. And so here's a simple math equation that you can have. You'll want to write this down, okay? Because this is just going to rock your world. It starts with everything, so you can write everything. And then you can say minus love or subtract love, everything minus love. And tell me what that equals. Nothing. There you go. Everything minus love equals... At first, I was going to say uh, anything minus love equals nothing. But then I thought that's not really Paul's point. Paul's point is all the grand things of the world, all together, everything, everything minus love is rendered worthless, empty, vain, zero. It's nothing without love. 
So there are many things you can do in the church. There are many things you can do in your life. There's so much you can do in Christian ministry that is reduced to zero without love. There are many ways you can think you're being a good servant or that you're using your gifts in the way that you're supposed to. There are many things that you can do that you just think everyone around you is just seeing how great you are, but in God's eyes, zero. Because everything minus love is nothing. Let's walk through this list that Paul presents to us. He starts first with speaking in tongues. If you remember last week, sorry, two weeks ago, uh, I talked about how this was particularly the Corinthian issue. The Corinthians were messing up spiritual gifts by making it competitive, by making it a, a display of maturity, all sorts of things. And especially speaking in tongues, it seems to be, by the evidence we have in the text, speaking in tongues seems to be one of those things they really lifted up, lifted up and said, if you can do this, we know that you've crossed the threshold into spiritual maturity. And so Paul lists that first here. He says, if I do this, this thing that you think is so great, speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Even if he was so gifted as to speak the language of heaven. Now, we don't have documented anywhere that there is a particular language of angels. Uh, we don't know. Every time an angel interacted with a human being in Scripture, he spoke the language of that human being. Uh, so, perhaps Paul is just totally using hyperbole here and saying that uh, there's a an angelic language. But the point is, this would be an amazing thing, an astounding event, if someone comes along speaking the language of angels. We would take us all aback. We'd say, whoa, you must be really, really close to God. And that's Paul's point. Yeah, you're going to think that, but without love, you know what you actually sound like? A middle schooler in the basement trying to learn drums. And I've not had to go through that, but that might lie in my future, uh, where it's just, you know, all off and just noise, noise, noise all the time. That's what it is without love. It's no longer an astounding event, but it's annoying. It's not helpful. It's useless. It's nothing without love. He also says, the next verse, verse 2, if he exercises the gift of prophecy without love, He's nothing. Being able to foretell what's going to happen, being able to eloquently foretell from the Word of God, that does not exempt a person from needing to have love. No person is exempt. All of that is worthless. All of that is net zero without love. Without love, the best orator in the world just becomes a dripping faucet. Nothing. Emptiness, vanity. Paul says if he knows all mysteries, if he has all knowledge, without love it's worthless. If you become the most intelligent person, if you have more wisdom than Solomon, it doesn't matter if you don't have love. Again, this is Robert Gramacki and it shows just how good he is with concise words. Robert Gramacki says that a full head with an empty heart is worth nothing. You could have an encyclopedia up there between the ears, 
But if your heart is cold, it means nothing. Paul says he could have all faith. If he has all faith but not love, he's nothing. What does it mean to have all faith? It means to not lack in any area of believing. We are all unfamiliar with that, aren't we? To be totally doubtless, absolutely thoroughly doubtless, that's a concept foreign to us. Paul uses the example of actually moving mountains. You have so much faith that you can move mountains with your faith. Of course, Jesus used the example of a little faith can do that. The faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. But Paul here is illustrating the opposite side of the spectrum. If you have big faith so that you can move mountains, but you have not love, it profits you nothing. Now, going back to Jonah, he's a prime example of somebody who had great faith with no love, isn't he? He knew God, he believed God, he heard from God, and he tried to run from God. So maybe, maybe not as great of faith as it appeared at first glance, but he knew that God existed, totally knew. But he had no love for the Ninevites. He had no love for them. And so all of his faith, all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom... It lacked love, and it profited him nothing. As you read that last chapter of Jonah, and you see how that story ends, can't you agree with what Paul is saying here at the end of verse 3? Without love, all that stuff profits you nothing. Profits him absolutely nothing. Two more examples that Paul gives. One is giving all possessions away for the sake of the poor. If you were the most altruistic person that there ever was, where you were just giving, giving, giving. It was just in your heart to give, or so it seemed. But you actually didn't have any inner care or concern, any true love for people. All of those actions are absolutely meaningless. And this is important to dwell on. A person can give their possessions away to feed the poor, and from God's perspective, it's zero, absolutely zero, if it's done without love. And you think, well, how could someone do that without love? Why would someone do that? Well, I think there's an indicator in the next example, the last example. Paul says, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, some manuscripts say, surrender my body so that I may boast, if I give my life over to hardship, that I may boast. Potentially, that could be what Paul had originally written. But the idea is being so prideful, being so obsessed with self, seeking after one's own glory, all the way to the point of just offering your whole body for the sake of self-boasting. And people have done it. People die for lies all the time. People die for vanity all the time. And you can think at the end of one's life when the religious man is before God, the religious man is meeting his Creator, and he could list off and say, but Lord, I, I gave away so much to feed the poor. I essentially gave my life over to a more difficult life, living on less than I could have otherwise, for the sake of others. 
But if they did not have the love of God, it's zero. It's absolutely zero. And for the Christian, there's a day, too, where our works will be burned and tested with fire. And you can think through all the things that you've done. And you can think, boy, I don't know if my neck's strong enough to hold up the crown I'm going to get, you know? And you get there, and all the works are tested by fire. And only what's done out of love for Christ and His people will remain. Everything else will be burned. We have to be so careful at looking at the external deeds, don't we? In the church and outside the church. You can look on the outside and you can think, wow, that's amazing. This person's doing this. This person's doing that. That person is just so full of, you know, all this goodness. Just be careful because God knows the heart. And I'm not saying go around and be grumpy to everybody either and be a fruit inspector and ruin everybody's day. But let's be careful about putting people on pedestals. Let's be careful about exalting man because that's what man wants, each one of us. We all want that in our flesh. But love is sacrifice, love is patient, love is full of grace and mercy. So the sum total of these things, speaking in amazing tongues, exercising the gift of prophecy, knowing all mysteries, having all knowledge, having all faith, giving away possessions for the sake of the poor, making the ultimate sacrifice of your own body, without love, the bottom line is zero. It's absolutely zero. And Paul says here again in the end of verse 3, all of these things without love, it profits me nothing. Thinking that people see your spirituality, thinking that God will credit you something as you're seeking to earn something from Him, you actually profit nothing. John MacArthur said this short, good statement, that the, the loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. The loveless person is reduced to nothing. And the Corinthians in particular needed to know that they were in vain pursuit of self-exaltation through gifts. That's what they were doing. It's the early church. A lot of new things were happening. Spiritual gifts were being poured out in unique ways in the early church. And you had people prophesying. You had people speaking in tongues. You had people doing all sorts of things. And it became a competition in Corinth. It became about exalting man. It became about stroking egos. It became about feeding the flesh. It was all contrary to love. It was all contrary to the love of God. They were reverting back to the natural man's loveless pursuit of his own glory. Remember at the beginning, God is holy and full of love. Man has fallen and has no love. They were reverting back to that natural state. They weren't doing battle with the flesh. They were indulging the flesh. And the spiritual gifts, heaven forbid that this ever happened here, the spiritual gifts had become a matter of competition to see who was the most mature. The spiritual gifts had become a lens through which they were judging everybody else based on their own individual abilities. Heaven forbid. That is not love in any sense. The real test of Christian maturity, Paul is telling us here, is love. That's the real test. There are people that you'll interact with who are not as gifted as you in different areas. They don't have the abilities that you have. 
They don't have the same concerns that you have. They don't think the way you do. They don't process the way you do. And that's okay. It's about love. It's not about what you can do to perform. It's not about what you can show to people externally. It's about what God sees, love. What is your motivation? What is your motivation? You could show up here every day of your life to volunteer in different ways and to do stuff. And that is an invitation. (laughs) But you could do that every day and just think, I have given up so much to do so much. I'm so awesome. I'm so great. And you can do so lovelessly. And all that effort, all that work that you thought made you look so great in front of everybody else, zero. Zero. And when you sit back and you look at the ways that you serve or the way that you go about life and the way that you do things, and you grade other people against that because you're the standard, zero. Those works are going to burn. Those works won't last. Those works won't stand the trial of love. Love is what matters. Love that we've come to know through the gospel. Jesus didn't come along and push His own agenda. He didn't push His own way in the way that He could, being the God of the universe. He was humble and obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's love. He was despised and shamed. He was looked down upon by other men. That's love. Though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's love. He didn't hold people's wrongs against them in ways that he could have as the one true God. That's love. And when we, as mere creatures, start going about our lives, snapping at each other, judging one another, reviling, being critical, we've left the love of Christ. He washed our feet. He continues to do so in the church. That's the medicine the Corinthians needed, was true love. Because no matter what you do in the name of Christ, it's worthless without love. It profits you nothing. I love uh, Gordon Fee. He wrote, what many consider to be the standard commentary on 1 Corinthians. We disagree with him on a few doctrinal points, but I just love his, I love his heart through his commentary, and I think this is a good example of that. He said, the easiest way to move from this paragraph, those three verses that we just read in 1 Corinthians, from their situation to ours is to simply give it a new ad hoc expression in terms of how one thinks of their own life to have spiritual significance. And he says, for example, if I write a commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, but have not love, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So you can throw that in. Whatever you got going on in your life, whatever you're seeking to do, if you're doing that without love, it's nothing. Everything minus love is nothing. But thanks be to God who not only saved us, but continually refreshes us in His love, doesn't He? He welcomes us back when we repent and we say, Lord, I have been doing this rebelliously. I've been doing this to lift myself up. I've been doing this out of pride. His arms are still open, aren't they? He brings us back and He gives us a better way forward. He renews our mind through His Word. 
and He gives us a better vision of how we are to live. He gives us the examples that we have in the Word of God to learn from, and He gives us the power to do it through His Holy Spirit. What an amazing God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these reminders that we have in Your Word that can shake us up when we get into different modes, different habits, different ways of thinking that are wrong. We thank You that You confront us through Your Word. God, we do ask for You to pardon our sin in ways that we've sought our own gain, in ways that we've sought to lift ourselves up, in ways that we've put our needs in front of others, ways that we've gone about even Christian service without love. And Lord, we ask that You would give us a new way forward, give us by Your Spirit a new direction that we would seek to sacrifice, to show mercy, to show grace, to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Give us great love in this, in this body that the gospel would be seen in all that we do and say and think. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.